From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. You know, we, we saw a lot of terrifying things and we, we lived through a lot of traumatic experiences. That has to be addressed because it's not that this, oh, let's just say, you know, hypothetically, if this pandemic ended today, hey, tomorrow we're all better. We're all ready to go back to our normal jobs and and we're all the mental illness is just gone and we're all okay. I, I don't think it works that way. Back in April, during the height of the pandemic in New York, more than half of healthcare workers were experiencing acute stress. Almost half showed symptoms of depression, and about a third had anxiety. That's according to a study published in June. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by that. Healthcare workers across the country are under a lot of stress. And for months now, the key question has been, what can we, as healthcare organizations and as a society, do about it? How can we take care of those who take care of us? Google how to boost resilience, and you'll find tons and tons of articles and videos. It's overwhelming, both too much and not enough. Recently, Mount Sinai's Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth, itself a product of the pandemic, developed a more systematic approach. They created an 11-week workshop that covers science-backed resilience strategies and gives participants a place to talk about what they went through. In this episode, you'll hear from two physician assistants and a clinical social worker who participated in the workshops. Together, we map out some of the complex feelings that frontline workers are wrestling with, and we talk about what it means to process them. Regardless of whether you're a healthcare worker, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Shauna Lynn. I'm a physician assistant at Mount Sinai main campus. I work in the uh, Reconati Miller Institute of transplant medicine. So I take care of patients who have undergone uh, liver, kidney, small bowel, or pancreas transplants. When the pandemic surged in New York, Shauna was redeployed essentially to an ICU. Among her other tasks, she found herself calling patients' families on Zoom, trying to bring them closer to their loved ones in the hospital. Was there one call in particular that stands out in your memory? Yeah, there was one um, woman I was in communication with, um, the daughter of a patient. She was extremely eloquent had a British accent, I distinctly remember. And her demeanor just changed so dramatically when she saw her mom. She went from so composed and so savvy to just a child, essentially, like broke down, crying, you know, mom, I love you. And for the first time, it really registered for her how much her mom was suffering. And she went from, you know, pushing for every intervention imaginable to saying, yeah, this is not what she would have wanted. What was that like for you to be mediating a conversation, an experience like that? It was very terrifying emotionally, but also extremely meaningful and powerful because you felt like you were the only connection this person has to their loved one. I wasn't really mediating it per se. I just felt like I was kind of a vehicle through which she could see her mom. And I tried not to editorialize it or intervene too much, but I just tried to give her mom some, you know, hold her mom's hand give her mom some tactile connection that she wasn't able to do. Shauna's deployment was stressful, but it also gave her purpose and an incredible sense of solidarity with her colleagues. Honestly, it was before I deployed, before I really felt like I had a purpose or a role at all, I was kind of like in limbo. And actually getting involved with the deployment helped ground me in such a way because I felt like it was such a social connection and a support system with people who were working on this concrete thing that we could we could be involved with. And I just it just feels like we both kind of battled something together. So we have a mutual respect and 
when I call them, I feel like they take my concerns seriously because we worked alongside each other. So that's kind of what I take away from it. Like a sense of almost like we were in a, in a war together. I don't, it's not like that intense, but it was in some ways like that. When we talk about processing the experience, what is it that you're processing? I think I'm processing like the timeline and what actually transpired because in the moment, I feel like we were just running on this adrenaline and time was so compressed. I felt like I built relationships with the, my coworkers that I haven't experienced after working a year on transplant. So I'm trying to process like how did I become so enmeshed in something in such a short time frame and how can I have that again because I miss that I miss that connection you know mm. at the same time I feel like I don't know really I feel like I'm still in the middle of it because it hasn't fully, I can't fully assume that it's over but I don't know just the enormity of the life that has been lost and I can't even imagine Cillian Phillip, an orthopedic surgery PA, was redeployed five times. The thing that took the hardest toll on me is not knowing when this was going to end. Because if you had told me, Cillian, I want you to do this really unpleasant job, but it's only going to last two weeks. And after two weeks, it'll be over and then you can go back to your regular thing. I'd be like, fine, I'll suck it up. I'll do it for two weeks. And when it's over, it'll all go back to normal. Not knowing if and when it would end. And just continuously being redeployed over and over and over again, to me, was very draining. How did that play out in your life, to be so drained? Um, I don't, I just don't, I would not classify my mental well-being in that state to be good. I don't know how to word it other than just saying I was, I was mentally, physically, and emotionally drained. I was isolated. I was alone. I was, I wasn't depressed, but I could feel the weight of it like slowly building. And had this kept going on indefinitely, like let's just say it went on an, another additional, you know, six months longer than it did or whatever the case may be, I don't know what my mental state would have been at the end of that. For Cillin, the most vivid memories are moments of human connection. The most prominent memories of working through COVID other than the interactions with fellow coworkers and friends were my interactions with patients, but not in a, from a provider standpoint, just from being a human standpoint. I remember I was in the ED and there was a patient kind of tucked away in one of the rooms in the corner. She was elderly. She was suffering from COVID. She wasn't going to make it. She was DNR, DNI. It was just a matter of time. And so I just sat with her and, um, and I just thought in my head, like, you know, if her family was here, what would they be doing? Maybe uh, saying a prayer, maybe just making sure she's comfortable. Yeah. I, I didn't, save her. And I didn't, this is not somebody that I had direct involvement in her medical care, but just to be able to sit there with her and, and just let her know, Hey, you're not alone. Uh, I don't know. To me, that was probably the most significant thing that I was able to do in that entire pandemic. Cillian saw his colleagues struggling with stress. One of the hardest parts for me was like seeing my coworkers come into work, afraid, nervous, scared for their lives in tears you know, coming into work with a heavy heart, probably mentally not ready to be there, but knowing they had to be there. Did you relate to those feelings? Did you share them? I did, but my personal feelings and my personal thoughts on it didn't affect me as much as seeing my friends and loved ones or colleagues go through it. And um, and that was actually 
one of the biggest reasons why I decided to take on this resiliency um, workshop because I knew there was a need and I thought this was something that we could do to kind of address that need. And this is a part that I could play to just help out in that cause. Describe the need for me. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we saw a lot of terrifying things and we, we lived through a lot of traumatic experiences. Uh, that has to be addressed because it's not that this, oh, let's just say, you know, hypothetically, if this pandemic ended today, hey, tomorrow we're all better. We're all ready to go back to our normal jobs and, and we're all the mental illness is just gone and we're all okay. I, I don't think it works that way. I think this is something that has to be addressed. I think it's something that has to be worked through. Um, I think you have to really heal from that. Driven by their experiences, Shauna and Sillen joined the 11-week resilience workshops. The workshops were organized for physician assistance by the Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. Each workshop revolved around a resilience factor, like optimism or facing fears. Those are topics we explore a lot on the podcast. And the groups became places to share and process together. Gabrielle Finley co-facilitated one of the groups. She's a clinical social worker at Mount Sinai's World Trade Center Mental Health Program. She does individual and group therapy there. Talking to her helped me understand the theory and practice behind the resilience workshops. What are the emotions that you've encountered in the PA workshops? Guilt, anger, sadness, worry, a lot of sadness. I think a lot of sadness and a lot of uncertainty. How does that come out? What sorts of things do people say? I think that people are reflecting back on some of the decisions that they had to make and to get support from other people to, to say, you know, I was in a similar situation. I also had to make a really tough decision and there were no perfect decisions to be made. And I made the best decision that I could in the moment. And there was tragedy, there was tragedy all around. And to know that they couldn't have done more, they couldn't have saved more lives. When we talk about processing an experience like this, what are we talking about? Like, what does it mean to process your experience through COVID? A lot of it, the way I think about processing is just like helping people to um, let their emotions come out in an adaptive way, right? Which is usually about talking about it in a setting with a therapist or with friends, um, giving people the space to feel their emotion, just to sit with their emotions, to be there next to them, to support them while they experiencing things that they were probably frightened to experience or have pushed, been pushing away or just have kind of like brushed under the carpet in order to function. I think it's also about giving people the words to share their experience, right? It's kind of, it's like putting a narrative to an experience that you had, giving it a story. And that's a way that people can store those things like in their memory bank by having kind of like attaching an emotional experience with words and emotion names. Tell me more about sitting with emotions. What's that all about? Yeah, it is, um, you know, a lot of times after trauma, people become somewhat phobic of their emotions. And a lot of people who work in trauma therapy think about 
PTSD is kind of like a, an emotional phobia. And so in many ways, that's how I think about the treatment is just, I can be there with them, right? I can hold someone's hand. I can be in that space. I can try to help them feel, feel safe, but ultimately people need to like experience their emotions without intervening in those motions, like letting those emotions kind of play their course out. Because if you don't, if you jam up those emotions, they have consequences to you in other ways. You've compared it to a wave crashing. Yeah, I think I think about emotions as being something that has a beginning, middle and end, right? And they start out slowly, and then they have this crest. And if you let them pass, and roll out, you'll get through the emotion, right? Emotions don't last forever. But what we tend to do is intervene. We, we, we don't let them run their full course. And when we do that, they just keep crashing on us and keep crashing on us, right? So there's no way to get past the emotion unless you swim through it. When is the time to, how do you think about the time to compartmentalize versus the time to confront and explore? I mean, I think when you are responding to an emergency, whether it's a medical emergency or whether it was responding to ground zero after the 9-11 attacks, I mean, that's a, that's a moment to compartmentalize and that's a moment, right? Like we're hardwired to respond to crises in that way, right? Like when we go into that fight flight reaction, you're compartmentalizing. You're not thinking about anything else except kind of protection, protecting yourself, protecting others. So those aren't the moments to, you know, think about the consequences to yourself or the meaning of life. Those are moments when you're just going and focusing and getting, doing what's necessary in that moment. I had the chance to sit in on one of the workshops yesterday. And um, there were many interesting things that I heard, but a couple of them were these sort of interesting reframes, ways of looking at a challenging experience. Somebody said, if I hadn't been through X, I wouldn't know why. Right. Why isn't like the letter Y. And the other one that was related was looking at what you learned about yourself, mm-hmm. and particularly in a positive way, how you can be resourceful perhaps in ways that you didn't realize. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I, I mean, understanding your strengths and knowing you know, that you can call upon those strengths day-to-day or when you're faced with challenges and knowing what your strengths are really helps improve a sense of competency, a sense of confidence. And I think that is one of the gifts, if we can call it a gift, that that trauma can give to people, that idea of kind of like a a post-traumatic growth is knowing who you are and what you can handle and what your strengths are. Another thing I noticed was that of course, the workshops have themes, and there were slides, although you didn't use them that much. There was like a couple of mm-hmm. slides, food for thought. It's not like you were right. you know, chugging through a slideshow. Right. But at a certain point, it struck me that it was almost as though what mattered the most was the fact that you were there, that everybody was there in the same room, mm-hmm. and that the specifics of what was said or what tools were shared almost came second. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, that that's the humanity of it, to just know that you are not alone in your suffering 
you know, maybe that sounds kind of like an expression you've heard many times before, but it is so profound and it's so meaningful. There is just something deeply reassuring about being with other people who get what you've been going through. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to articulate exactly why and like through what mechanism, but it just is. Right, right. It's like you you can feel the comfort. It's like when you hear someone who speaks something that you can relate to and that resonates with you, it's like your whole body, it's like is wrapped in a warm blanket, right? Like you can feel your heart rate slow down. I can feel Mm -hmm. like the tension go out of my neck. It's just that that connection that you have gives you courage and gives you strength and, you know, reminds you that your relationships are what it's all about. Any most healing happens in the context of other people. When you have real pain and you have real sadness and you've had real sorrow and tragedy, you can't take those things away. Life always is going to have sadness and grief in it. But what you can do is come together with other people and you can share that pain. So healing to me is a lot about sharing your burden so that you don't have to carry it alone. What does healing feel like? And when I think about healing specifically for people who have had traumas, right? Trauma can certainly put so many restrictions in your life. After you have a trauma, you can often become really scared about re-experiencing something that will remind you of your trauma, right? So, so people's lives can be very, very restricted. Um, and when I see people recovering, I see them having a more full life, right? Doing the things that are really consistent with their values, uh, whether that is spending more time with their family, getting involved in community events, reading more. They do the things, they spend their time doing things that are important to them as opposed to living you know, in a bubble. I asked Sillin, who actually co-facilitated one of the groups, and Shauna how they were feeling as the workshops were wrapping up. Has being a part of these sessions changed the way that you cope? I think I underestimated the value of speaking about things out loud, even if it's not to just like, because I might not necessarily be saying something because I need somebody to say something back to me, but just expressing things, letting things out, speaking openly, just saying out loud things that I was holding in. And just the act of doing that in itself can be healing and therapeutic. You're not going to solve your whole life issue in, in an hour once a week, but it gives you strategies, tools. It provides a safe space for like open communication. Um, it invites you to be with people who you might not cross paths with otherwise, but who have a similar motivation and desire to like hash out these questions. So yeah, it's been a very lovely experience. Here's Gabrielle again for some final thoughts. I'm imagining a general audience listener hearing this conversation, and I'm wondering if there's any kind of specific thoughts that you would want to leave them with. I guess, you know, I'm trying to put this in an elegant way. There's always opportunity, whether it's like if you're thinking about joining the resilience group, or if you're thinking of just getting to know the colleague next to you that you've never spoken to before, but maybe you will think about it now, right? There's always opportunity 
around us to grow and to learn and to foster relationships. You know, I guess it's just like the topic of these groups, right? And the topic of your podcast, The Road to Resilience, there's like so many opportunities all around us to continue developing that. We're never too old to learn. We're never too rigid to change. There's all these opportunities. So never think that it's not possible for you. Thank you again to Shauna, Sillen, and Gabrielle and all the PAs we talked to for this episode. If you work at Mount Sinai and want to learn more about the Resilience Workshops, please visit the Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you like this episode, please rate and review Road to Resilience on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Thanks. The podcast is a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's produced by Katie Ullman, Nikki Hudson, and me, John Earl. From all of us here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.